I have two kind of a little bit longer announcements as we start today. The first one is this. Uh, Element started about 10 years ago. And we used to be meeting this old car dealership that was over on Skyway and Broadway. In the middle of that, about five years in, we're trying to look for a place to build a permanent home so we weren't always in this concrete tilt-up structure that one day they said they were going to demolish. And we ended up buying this field that was next to us. We paid a million bucks for this field. and I know, it seems like a lot of money for dirt. And... Throughout, throughout the course of a couple of years, we came up with a bunch of plans in order to build us a permanent home in, in the Santa Maria Valley, but some title codes changed in California because they love their taxes, and the cost to build this building more than doubled, and we thought that's, it's not a very frugal thing for Element to do with uh, you know, all of our collective money that we're putting towards this, and so we took a step back and we started looking around, and God led us to this property, and about a year and a half ago, we moved in here, and we, we bought this piece of property. And last year, we ended up selling our old uh, piece of land for $1.5 million. So we, so we made some money on it, and we paid $1.5 million for all of this property with all the buildings on it all together. Now, we had, since we had a loan on that piece of property, you know, part of that had to pay off that, and we had a little bit of a loan, and we came in here and things like that. And I've got to tell you, uh, last week, we paid off all of our debt. So... And that's, and that's really because of your guys' generosity. So th- thank you to you. Uh, we do have a bunch of stuff still going forward. We've got to expand the children's building because we need more room. We're going to build another little building out here to try and alleviate some more crowding for some other things. And after all that's done, we've got to go to the county. We've got to get a, a new site plan for everything. and do, It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while, and the county, again, always wants money, so it's going to take some money as well. So please continue to be generous. Uh, one, one of our goals after we do this whole site plan is we'd really like to build a preschool uh, because there's, it's, a, it's a huge need in our valley right now. Uh, almost every preschool in town is impacted, and they have a waiting list on it. We would love to be able to offer the moms that go to Delta as part of our ministry to the school across the street uh, you know, free childcare that actually teaches their kids things so they learn a little bit about who Jesus is as they, as they go there. And so it's one of the things we really like to do. But again, that's, that's down the road, so thank you so much. Continue to please be generous, and we will continue, hopefully, to be faithful in what you give us and transparent and where everything goes because we do also have lots of things we give to in our community and around the world as well. So that's my first thing. Uh, my second thing is, is this that's a really little more serious. Uh, there have been uh, in our country recently uh, a series of mass shootings. I don't know if you watch the news, but, but it's there. And we haven't really addressed it so much from up front, and we're thinking about you know, a way to do that. And a couple things in this. First off, we have to understand that it is not a political ideology that makes people do these things. People are broken, and that's what happens. And you will see people from both sides of the political aisle committing these atrocious, atrocious things. So you have to understand that we can't just point to the other side and say, it's your fault, you do this. If people from both sides have done this. And secondly, the news media does nothing but react to these things. And what it does is it makes everybody else react. And what they continue to do is divide our culture and our nation. 
We, as people, if we say we believe in Jesus, are those who bring hope and healing and grace and restoration to the world around us. We are a people, when these things happen, we don't react. We might react in, in sadness and mourning together, but we don't need to react and be like, we got we to take a step back. God, I see this thing. Please give me wisdom. Draw me where you want me to go, where you want me to make a difference. And then you step into those places with God's leading and his guidance and his grace with an understanding of the good news of the gospel, of God's restoration of us. I wrote a, I wrote a blog last week, and at the end of the blog post, if you want to look it out on our website, I put a link to a guy that wrote another little blog because he was a mass a shooting survivor. And he said, if you want to pray for survivors of mass shootings, this is what you pray for. And so I'd encourage you to go look that up. But we, as a people, must be those who who do enter into these places, but we do it with wisdom and grace and the leading of God. And we should be praying for these people in the midst of these and also have our eyes open so that we can step in and make a difference for the good news of the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay, uh, if you are new today, we don't normally start that heavy, but there that is. Uh, there are these sermon notes and all the community tables throughout the room. They look like this. If you'd like to grab one, you can take some notes on what's on front. Here's the verses we're going to cover, and then some stuff that we're going through and some questions to reflect on what we talk about today. And what we talk about today will also, I think, kind of relate to that whole mass shooting thing and what we can do in the world as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And this is Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. And this is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand your provision and your grace. Even in the times that our trials and times that are hard and things that we don't understand, that we would still come to a place of trusting you and your goodness and your grace and your leading and your guidance. And that we would step into these places fully honoring who you are. And that we would trust you for the places you take us to. That daily provision that you always give because you are good. So teach us today to worship and honor and love who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series uh, for the summer. I thought it would be fun called I Believe in Miracles, about different miracles in the Bible. And, but then I think about this, and I think I, I read theology books for fun. So maybe my definition and yours might just be a little bit different. Uh, so we're looking at these miracles in the Bible, what they mean, what they don't mean, what people have said about them, and, and I think what we can learn and understand better through them. Uh, there are sometimes things that happen that, that we don't understand, and we don't see miracles maybe every day that just face us right in front of us. And sometimes we overlook them. Today we try and do things where if we hear a miracle in the Bible, a lot of people's first response is to try and think up a natural explanation for how it could have happened. And I'm not saying that's always bad, but sometimes it can be if we're always trying to look for a natural explanation for something that is supernatural. Uh, you got to understand, people in ancient times who wrote the things that we read, they weren't stupid. They knew people didn't get swallowed by and live in big fish. They, they knew that the sea waters don't part and people walk across on dry land. They knew people didn't ride from the dead. It's why they were called miracles. Uh, I'll show you a misunderstanding of a miracle. Uh, God says to his people, after they've been wandering around in a desert for 40 years, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4, says, your clothing did not wear out and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Now, some people have said, that's the 
greatest miracle in the Bible. For 40 years, their clothes never wore out and their, and their feet never swelled in the desert heat. What? Where do I get the miracle clothes? Like, where do, where do I find those? And this is why it's important to understand miracles and what they mean and, and how they come about. The wording here actually means that God provided for them so fully while in the wilderness that they didn't have to wear old clothes. Adam Clark writes this, The plain meaning of this much-tortured text is this, God so amply provided for them in all the necessities of life that they never were obligated to wear tattered garments, nor were their feet injured for the lack of shoes. The Israelites had carvers and jewelers and weavers, and there's no reason to think that they didn't have tailors or cobblers for shoes. Most of the people who entered the promised land at the end of this 40 years were either under 20 when they left Egypt or were born while they were walking through this desert wilderness in this 40 years. And if each person wore that same garment for 40 years, that means thousands of people had garments that miraculously stretched and grew with them. I mean, imagine, you're you're a baby, you get born in this 40 years in this wilderness exodus time, and they slap a onesie on you. And for the rest of your life, you've got to wear a onesie? Can you imagine being your age and wearing... Some of you can. Just keep it to yourself. Okay, but... But can you imagine the clothes you wore in high school? You're still wearing those? I went to high school in the 80s. Unless it's like Stranger Things, because it would be a Stranger Thing if I was wearing them. But you know, it's that whole thing. So what it's telling you that in a very natural way, God did a miraculous thing. He provides for them while they are there so they could still work and contribute. And I wanted to say that before we get to the miracle that we talk about today. Because the miracle today, I believe, is and was a genuine, God-intervening, in-nature type of miracle. I think today's miracle could be called the Oprah miracle, because it's about bread, and Oprah loves bread. Have you ever seen it? Uh, Where this miracle happens is after God parts the Red Sea. We talked about the Red Sea parting last week. He has liberated the Israelites from bondage and slavery in Egypt, and he's leading them to their destiny and mission. And so last week I told you about how this parting of the Red Sea is a great way to understand salvation because God parts and he leads his people from slavery to freedom to condemnation to life, from being enemies of God to being children of God. God does this in an instant for them. He brings them out. Uh, Steve Pruitt last week after first service said, you should have used the word justification. That's another big Christian word. God justifies us by an act that he does on his part to lead us to be the people he is calling us to be. It's amazing. And so if you want to understand salvation, look at that. Today, I'm going to give you another kind of definition of a word that we talked about at the end of last week's message, and it's this big Christian word called sanctification. The miracle that you see today is really going to define what that looks like and what our understanding of sanctification means because the Israelites they crossed the Red Sea but now they're in this place called the wilderness and the wilderness is really just a fancy word for the desert okay that's what the wilderness is in the desert you'll see the provision of God not just in these miracles to make clothing, but in food and sustenance. God leads them to a desert place where life can't be sustained on its own, which means God is trying to teach them something about who he is. The desert is miserable, but they are there for a reason, and that reason is that God led them there. Now, from the time they left Egypt, this pillar of cloud by day and this fire by night, which is during the day that still looks like smoke, so it looks like a cloud, so that's what it is. God appears before the children of Israel as he leads them out. The reason they're in this place now where there's no food, uh, chapter 17 will say there's no water, in that place that's awful, hard, and difficult, and dangerous, and uncomfortable, is that it's part of God's plan for them. 
It's the journey that God is now taking them on. They will complain in the desert just like they complained on the other side of the Red Sea, just like they complained when they were in slavery in Egypt. They complain and complain. And God does all these miracles to rescue them, and they seem to always forget the miraculous that God was doing, just like us. God comes and he rescues us where we are and sets us free to live and love and follow him and love other people around us again. And what do we do? We constantly complain about our lives and all the things that we used to have. It's almost like we always relate to God through the lens of addiction of some sort because we're always looking back at our old life and misery and saying, oh, it wasn't really so bad. It wasn't so bad. We forget many of the ways that we were destroying ourselves and other people around us. The truth is that by following Jesus, we get out of slavery and bondage to sin in an instant. Boom, we are set free freedom like we talked about last week. But then God now moves us to change us day by day by day. One writer said it like this, you can get people out of slavery in an instant, but you can't get the slavery out of people except through a long process. And this is why we talk about this thing called sanctification. It's a process. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, we're all made righteous before God. When we trust him and believe in him, we are righteous forever. But every day, God takes us and grows us to be more like him. Uh, Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single, sacrifice, a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The NIV defines it a little for you. It says, For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That we get to be free to be who God made us to be. We don't have chains on us that stop us from doing that any longer. And so we're free, but we haven't really learned how to be free. So we have all this freedom given. And so we don't know how to work out this liberation in our lives. And this is why growth takes a long time. This is why you see this whole Exodus journey for 40 years and what God is going to lead them through and how he grows them. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. That's in the Old Testament, fifth book. Uh, And then also I'm going to have you go to Exodus 16. So keep your places in both of those this morning. In the book of Deuteronomy, right before Moses dies, he is going to speak to the people of Israel and that have been in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so what Moses says is looking back in these 40 years in the desert, the reason you went through all this wilderness is because you didn't really know your own heart. Not that God doesn't know who you are, but you didn't know who you are, and we really still don't. The purpose of God in the wilderness was not transportation. The purpose was education and counseling and training and growth and love. It is that salvation beginning to be lived out in present time. It's kind of like we're people today. We go to God and we say, God, make me more joyful. Make me happy. Make me a loving person, more patient, whatever it is. How does that happen? God's like, okay, we're going to go on a journey, and I'm going to grow it in you. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, light momentary affliction doesn't mean something's easy. It means that it can be very hard, and yet, in light of eternity, we look and see this thing, and we say, you know what? That's nothing in light of what God is going to do throughout eternity. And so this present suffering is preparing us for a weight of eternal glory. Now, the word glory, it means weight, something that has substance to it. I don't know if you've ever met somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of substance to them. Everything in their life has always gone easy, so they've never had to really deal with any pain or hardship. I know that's how most people raise their kids today, right? It's like, oh, you're whining, have whatever you want. Like, 
it's almost easy to get to about three years old and have everything go the way you want it to. But then you get older than three and it doesn't keep going that way. Some people try. You might have good looks or affluence or things like connections and things like that. But if you've never had hard things come into your life, those people typically become very shallow. They don't have a whole lot of depth to them. And it, the, the Bible, when the Apostle Paul says that they are weightless, they're superficial, they're no suffering, no glory, no pain. They don't understand what it means to enter into hard times. And really, these same time, people aren't good at relationships either because they can't really sympathize. They don't understand how other people feel because they are so consumed with themselves and getting all of their own needs met. And they're thinking intellectual, they tend to be superficial. They don't have much in the way of insight and no wisdom. Uh, it's, it's like this. Uh, today we have this whole debate about the minimum wage. Okay? And let me say all I'm going to say before you react and get angry at me. Okay? I think the minimum wage should be like five bucks or two. Because I think it should be for jobs that high schoolers do that are horrible. Where they go and be like, one day I want to be on fries so I can make an extra dollar. You want these horrible jobs where they're like, I don't want it. It's right. Because you want to go to school and you want to get a better job and get a better wage. Right? They should be terrible jobs. Now, in our culture, we have, we have you know some places where job market isn't that great. So there should be some jobs that maybe our minimum wage should get paid more, okay? But there should still be jobs in our culture, I think, that are just hard and terrible. And we should give them to the high school kids and those freshmen in college, and they're like, this stinks! And you're like, yes, it stinks! Do good in school. You don't want to work flipping hamburgers all day the rest of your life, right? It's, it's that thing where you, they need and want to grow because they've gone through a hard time and it grows them out the other side. Today we have a culture where if anything goes wrong, automatically we react and we freak out. The Bible indicates that the only way we really become people who grow in substance and joy and peace and grace and hope and wisdom is by going through wilderness training by going through hard places, and it only happens in those difficult things. And this is really bad news for a lot of Americans today. I get it, because we like technique, and we like pills and technology. We want things that do things to us. We say, Lord, make me happy, or make me strong, or loving, or wise, and I'm going to go lay down right here, and then I'm going to let you do whatever you're going to do, whatever treatment it is. Shoot me with the the Holy Spirit juice, and with the Jesus ray gun, you know, whatever it is, and you just tell me when it's done, and I'm going to go home, and I'll be all better. That's not how God does it. That's not how God, God doesn't zap us into maturity. God leads us in a process. And we typically complain the entire time, ah, the whole time, right? But he leads us in a process. And it can be painful and arduous and long, but it's a process because we're not objects that God zaps. We're his people, and he wants to grow us. And so we cooperate with him and participate in this process. God allows hard times in our lives. It's not that God is the author of evil, but he allows hard things to come. If you look in the book of Genesis in chapter 1, you will see how God creates all these things, sun, moon, stars, oceans, vegetation, animals, people. The one thing God doesn't create is deserts. God doesn't say, let the dirt spring up from the dirt and let the sun savage the land. This will be great. He doesn't say that. What we have to understand through how the Bible relates to the course of human events is that disease and suffering and evil and disaster and poverty and war, all of these things are things that we brought into the world because of our sin because of how we run away from God, because of how we want to rebel against who he is. In John chapter 11, Jesus will stand in front of the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he is sad, and he is angry because of what sin and death has done in the world. In Isaiah 35, we are told at the renewal of all things that there will be streams in the desert, that the desert is going to blossom and bloom and run with life. God is going to get rid of all the deserts. But until then, as we live this life in this world, everybody, including Jesus himself, will have to go through the brokenness that this world brings that comes into our lives. 
But if and when we trust God, we also have God's promise that God is going to weave all of this brokenness together. And God is going to do something about it. He regulates the order and the timing of the deserts for His glory and our good. So go to Exodus chapter 16. Stay, keep your finger in, uh, in Deuteronomy 8, but Exodus chapter 16. Uh, Tim Keller actually calls all of the miracles that are done throughout this whole desert experience, he calls them the lost language of salvation. I like that because we forget it so much. So in Exodus, again, we'll see that this whole idea of salvation is liberation. We're free. Salvation is how God intervenes in our lives to then set us free and liberate us from all the things that would enslave us, all the things that would kill us, all the things we build our identity on that is not upon God himself. God breaks those chains and sets us free. So God intervenes to liberate us. And it sounds great, but it can also be painful at times as those chains are broken and we have to then live with all the things that held us down for all this time. And so in the desert, you get to see this process, but also the provision of God because he's patient with the Israelites as he's patient with us. So the Israelites are in the desert. Uh, they've seen the Egyptian army destroyed by this miracle of parting the Red Sea and the waters coming back. They've seen the 10.5 miracles that took place in the land of Egypt. And now they think where they are that this God who parted the seas and did all of these miracles can't get them food, that they're all going to die. They grumble against God and Moses. Like I told you last week, if God wanted to kill him, he could have said, step into the sea on dry land. Yay! And he could have been done, right? You didn't have to do all this effort to get him out there to starve him. Exodus 16, verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is what they say after seeing all the miracles and the provision of God. Now, I understand this a little bit because I have been on a boat with five kids under the age of 10. Okay? And this happens all the time. Their parents feed them, bring all these snacks, and the kids eat all the snacks, and all of a sudden all the snacks are gone, and they just melt down. You don't love me. They don't have any apple juice or crackers or cheese sticks or grapes. It is this total meltdown. I, a couple weeks ago, we're sitting on the boat, and this one little boy's like, ah, and it's like, and his dad's like, you literally just swallowed a cheese stick. Ah, it's like, no more food, we're going to stop. It's, it's crazy. This is what they do. This is what we do with God all the time. We're melting down. God, you can't really take care of me. So what God does is he leads them and he provides this thing called manna. God literally gives them bread from heaven for them to eat. Exodus 16, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, there's more to that verse, and I'll deal with that at the end, but you've got to start right there. Now, the Israelites are going to call this bread manna. Manna literally translates as, what is it? Because like, it has no, it's like, I don't know what it is. It's, you know, it's this ready-to-eat thing. Manna has its, its roots in this idea of food of some sort, but they don't know what to call it. God's going to give them instructions on what to do with what is it. He tells them, gather what you need for one day, because each day I'm going to provide it. And then on the sixth day of the week, you gather twice as much, so you don't have to gather on the Sabbath rest day. And guess what? They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They'd gather extra because they didn't trust God. And they'd keep this extra, but in the morning it would be rotten and it would stink, all except for the sixth day when it would actually last two days. Miracle. Exodus 16, verse 14 and 15. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They said, manna. Okay? It means whatness again. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Go to verse 31. 
Now the house of Israel called its name manna, called it, what is it? It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I like wafer cookies. I don't know about you. Uh, verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to the habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So God provides for them 40 years while they're in this desert experience. They complain, they complain about the manna. I can't believe it's a daily miracle. They complain. God's going to even give them quail. They will then complain about the quail. Seriously, dealing with human beings is tough, I'm telling you. Keller points out that this miracle is this continuing teachable moment by God because he provides daily for them. And he even tells them how to get it because you could die if you didn't know how to get it. God here is turning everything on its head. They come out of this place that is the fertile Nile Valley that's supposed to have food everywhere, and yet they're in slavery and bondage and they're starving. God now takes them into a wilderness place like the desert where there's not supposed to be any food and it's hard to live, and God provides for them more than they actually need. And it's meant to be a vivid way of showing and saying that the very best circumstances without God are places of death. And the worst circumstances with the presence of God can be places of life and hope and grace again. And I think that can directly relate what's going on in our culture today with all of these shootings. I think even in the places with the worst circumstances, with the presence of God, we can bring fullness and hope and life and grace again. In getting the manna, there were these rules, as I said, you couldn't get it on the Sabbath because that's the day that God wanted you to rest and you'd remember who's giving you all of this food to eat. On other days, you gather which just for that day. One commentator says, well, I don't know why God just didn't put it in their bellies. You wake up and you're hungry and boom, you're full. That's a miracle. Well, I think that God didn't do that for the reason of the sanctification idea. When they're brought out of Egypt, it's God doing all the work, thus salvation. But now they're liberated. And so God is going to walk and work with them to give them something to do because now they had to get the manna. It's like the sanctification. It's kind of like being a believer in Jesus. He saved us through no effort on our own. He rescues us, brings us into his family by his own grace. But now, after that, he starts to give us things that we can walk with him in and grow through. So we walk with him and we work with him and we love with and like him. These suffering and trials in our lives, they can make us strong and wise and more sensitive when we focus on him. But if we don't, they're going to make us bitter and broken and angry. It's going to depend on where our focus is. In any wilderness experience that anybody goes through, they're never going to come out the other side exactly the same as they went in. And so with our focus upon who Jesus is and walking with him to see the beginning from the end, we grow more into the people he calls us to be. We get to be a people of strength. And this is the thing about that strength. God calls us to live in it. We don't earn it. It's not something we earn, but it's something he calls us to live in every single day. And so when you go through this wilderness, we have to do it with a thoughtful heart and mind towards what God is doing. I think people who don't have any faith in God in this world, that the world's only material, you should be depressed all the time because everything to you is just chemical reactions. Love, hate, goodness, evil, they really don't matter. So some people try to ignore it altogether, and this is what we get in a culture that tries to ignore it all the time. You contrast this with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Moses says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What Moses says is when it comes to God and all these personal deserts we go through, we get strength as we live out the implications of our understanding of what God is doing with a worldview that is centered upon the person of Jesus. In times of trouble, in these wilderness places, we take the truth, every word that comes from the mouth of God, and we digest it. 
And it's kind of cool because it's kind of saying if we're in despair, we're falling apart, we're typically not thinking or processing through things the way that God is calling us to. We need to understand we are adopted. We're accepted. We are the delight of the only one whose opinion in the entire universe actually counts, God himself. And if everything in the Bible is true, and if every word out of the mouth of God is true, then we know that all the greatest evils and the darkest shadows are just passing things, that they are temporary. And so when I say, you know, begin to think more about what God is doing, I don't mean chant a mantra, be strong, be strong, be strong, be strong. That's not what I'm saying. It means what we begin to think about what God has actually done. This is why Element, we so strongly remind you every week of the gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus dies to bring us into relationship with God again. He restores us, renews us, brings us back to life. That's what we think about. For the Israelites, the manna comes every day. Why not once a week? Bread lasts a week, right? Well, you go, even when Jesus was speaking and walked on the earth, he says, you know, when you pray, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. He is most likely referring to the manna. And when he talks about this, it's like this deeper understanding of pray because we need a moment-by-moment dependent relationship with God. It's like turn-by-turn directions in Google when you don't know where you're going. We need the Googles to get us each step of the way or we're going to get lost. Like, I'm going to run out of gas. Hey, Google, where's the closest gas station? Half your watches are going to go, ding, it's right here. All right, so, and it tells you because I'm going to get lost. I don't know the gas station. So it leads you where you're supposed to go. When we follow God, it's, it's like these moment-by-moment directions where God is leading us and guiding us to true life in who he is. Only God knows the way out of the wilderness. And typically the way out, he takes us right through the middle of it. And if you are a jerk one day and you realize it, which is a miracle, okay, and you realize it and you say, God, teach me not to be a jerk tomorrow. God doesn't zap you into not being a jerk. God's going to take you and put you right back in the same situation with maybe that same person or maybe someone else, and you're going to have to begin to deal with it differently. If you are arrogant or prideful and God does a miracle and you see it, because <laughs> most people don't, right? And you see it, and you're like, oh, God's not going to zap you into not being arrogant or prideful. God's going to put you right back in a situation with someone who you think is a total idiot and make you actually work through that with love and grace as you deal with somebody else. We need to follow and trust him moment by moment by moment because we go to God not just to get our needs met, but as the only thing that we truly ever need. See, this, this whole secret of this manna, the miracle of this, that it's the same thing the scriptures speak about from beginning to end. In this wilderness and relationship, it's about God and other people and restoration and life. Some people who go out to, to gather this manna, they are like six foot four with giant hands. And some people are four foot six with tiny little hands. But they all gather together and they bring it together. Different amounts. And yet, Exodus 16, verse 17 and 18, And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. God says, go out and gather these things and bring them all together. And if someone had five people in their tent, they got five omers. And someone had four, they got four omers. And omer is a unit of measurement. We don't use that anymore, by the way. You can't go to the store and go, where's the omer measurement? I can't find it. But everybody got what they needed. It's gathered by individuals, trusting and following God, and then brought together and distributed to the community. And so you see manna. It's about relationship with God and other people, that we can't live without God, and we were not meant to live without other people. We're meant to gather with people who are on the same journey and talk about it and lift one another up and walk through all these places where people fall down, and we help lift them back up and admonish one another and help each other think about Jesus more as we gather all these things that God has placed into our lives through his miraculous grace. 
Now, let me try to bring this together with one last thing here. And this is something that people really hate about this miracle. Uh, and that's it's a test. Exodus 16, verse 4. The whole thing says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, we hate tests. And we say, oh, God is so mean. Look at this, so terrible, testing them. Oh, what a mean God, right? This is one of the most beautiful things in the entire Old Testament that you could see because God is teaching them to trust him. And what do they do? Fail every day, every day. Verse 20, they didn't listen. Verse 27, they tried to gather more. Every day God brings us, every day they fail. And yet verse 35 of chapter 16 says, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to the habitable land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So what kind of test is that, right? I fail, and God keeps bringing it. It's that God is patiently, lovingly, throughout those 40 years, continues to say, let's do it again tomorrow. Let's do it again tomorrow. Let's do it again tomorrow. It is grace. And God's not hanging that over their heads and being like, oh, you're so terrible. It's, you know what? I love you. We're going to do it tomorrow. I love you. We're going to do it tomorrow. That's what God does. See, God's tests are different than our tests or your professor's tests or your SATs or things like that. God's tests are to show us our character, which is typically terrible, and his character, which is amazing. See, the test doesn't qualify people to be children of God. His grace does that. It's not, oh, you failed the test. You can't be a child of God. No, his grace makes us his children. Before the Israelites go into the promised land, Moses says to these people, essentially, you've never gotten what you deserve. Never. Never. Even in that wilderness, that 40 years, that's not retribution. What that is, is God bringing you along to grow you. And no matter how often you have failed, he continues to love and work with you. And that's how we see these things. I have seen people throughout my years go through some really hard things in their lives. And some of their lives just kind of melt down. Because they think, if I did it right, then I was supposed to get this. And and these things are happening, so either God failed or I failed or, or something like that. They think, I must be a failure of some sort. Guys, I want to tell you, look at Jesus, okay? Again, gospel. Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus, I would say, you know, pretty good guy, right? Perfect, right? That's hard, hard to do. God even says this when Jesus is baptized. Here's my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, okay? It's amazing. But as soon as he is baptized, God's spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. The spirit leads him there where he was tested and he was tried. 40 days, just like 40 years of the Israelites in the wilderness. And Jesus was absolutely obedient. He was the only one ever. Now, why is all this told to us in the scriptures? Because Jesus gives us his righteousness. He gives us his grace. Because of what Jesus did, we get to be adopted. We get to be accepted. Because Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, he then dies the death that we should have died. And when we believe in him, we relate to God now as a father. We are brought in. We are accepted. We, we are loved. And then you have all these wilderness issues, the troubles in our lives. They're not always necessarily because we failed. And they're certainly not because God has failed. It's that God many times treats us like his children, and his mercies become new every single day, even in the midst of these failures and hard times. See, the miracle of the manna is that we still today get daily provision and grace from God. The question for us becomes, is will we really live in it? Do we trust it to live in it? See, salvation is no condemnation. Our mistakes, our failures, our sins don't rule us any longer. But yet God in his grace still comes, and he wants to grow us every single day. And I don't know, maybe some of the stuff that you guys are going through this morning. And you're walking through a hard time, this desert issue. And it's like, why, 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 why? And take a step back from that first why and just say, God, teach me to trust you in the midst of this. I want to learn what you want me to learn. I want to grow throughout where you're calling me to grow. And then when you get really, you know, out of control, 
take a step back and remember and think about the gospel, what Jesus did to rescue you. If God did these things where his son comes and dies and rises from the grave for us, God has a purpose and a plan in everything that he does. And so we can trust him in that. God didn't lead the people out of Israel across this sea to starve them in the wilderness. God brought them out to grow them and teach them to learn to be his people. God has a purpose and plan for every single one of us. And it's not always easy, and it's usually not our plan. It's usually not, I want to figure this out in this way, and this way. God, we're going to do this. God's like, that's cute. We're going to go do this, right? And God leads us where he wants and needs us to be so that we grow. And so we trust him, but it's an eye to remembering and understanding the gospel and the implications of what that means as we walk through every desert place. And this is why we come to communion every week at Element, where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, it reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. It's a remembrance of God's great promises always coming true, that God rescues, God redeems, God draws us into himself, because he is good. He has liberated us. We are brought into relationship, and now he leads us into all the places he intends for us to go and grow. The band's going to come up. As I do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, There's going to be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you are going through some wilderness thing in your life right now and you don't understand it, you can't see the way out the backside of it, and you want someone to pray with you, they would love to pray with you about that. Maybe there's just some deep gnawing thing in the midst of your heart where you keep thinking that you're doing something wrong. And if you just did it right, well, then God would do this other thing. How about coming to a place where you step into this with some other people and begin to let them pray over you? and to trust the things that God has said. Because God's provision is sure, and His grace is new every day. And everything that we go through, God can use for His glory and our eventual joy. And it may not seem like that right now, but it is true, and it is reality, that God can redeem all things, because He is our great Redeemer. There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's always meant to be a response to what he has done in our lives, just like communion, just like prayer. Uh, There's some food outside. You can grab something to eat, maybe take some sermon notes, and then talk to some other people through some of these questions. What is your wilderness experience right now? Or what are the things that you have been through that God has taught you? Or maybe what is the thing that God's trying to teach you right now, but you're just angry at him all the time and you don't want to learn? It's like, how dare you take me through this right now, God? Right? You talk to other people about that. It's why God leads us into community with one another. So in all that we do, we trust him in all things because he is good and he is our rescuer. Let's be a people who live in that great redemption that we have received. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of your hope day by day. Father, so often we are a people who get so distracted by the things that happen to us rather than looking at what you are doing in the midst of the world, in the midst of our lives. And so I ask that you would teach us what it means to look at the experiences that come our way and begin to walk through those things with you, to trust you in in the midst of the things that we don't understand, that we would be a people who understand the depth of you paying our debt that you giving us your righteousness, which enables us to be a people who don't have to earn your righteousness or grace. We get to freely live in it. And from the understanding of living in it, we can then live out in this world in ways that honor you as we walk with you every day in your strength. And we can model this to those around us. 
so that others would also understand the great freedom that we have as our God leads us and guides us to not only understand our own salvation better, but how that is lived out in the midst of this world, in the midst of community. Father, teach us to understand your great love for us so that we would in turn love you back. And we would understand all of our lives as gracious gifts from your hand. Teach us to walk with you through every desert or fertile place in worship of who you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.